Well, hey everyone, my name is Steven and I am one of the pastors here at Journey Church. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to this message. We pray that this helps you on your walk with Jesus, but also that it encourages you to get plugged into a local community of believers. Hey, if 2020 taught us anything, it's that being isolated from others is not how God intended us to live. So be sure to use this resource in conjunction with being plugged into your local church. Hey, we hope you enjoy this message from God's Word. We are in a series of messages that we started a couple of weeks ago. This series is called God Is. The purpose of the series of messages is to study and learn about the names of God. Names are important. Names in our society are a little bit of different importance than they were in the Middle Eastern society that Jesus would have been a part of and even what is Middle Eastern society today. But names are definitely important in our society as well. Names have a way of defining our relationships. For our relationships are really categorized by the kind of names that we have. Let me give an example of this. I am known by many names. To some, I am known by Reverend Youngs. That's probably the least preferable name that I have in all of my names. Um, uh, To most others, I'm just known as Aaron. To many, I'm known as Pastor Aaron. I have some that know me as just bro, and they call me bro. I have some that call me, six in particular, that call me dad. I have two special relationships that will call me baba, and I am their baba. I have one that calls me sweetheart, or the sexiest man alive, (laughs) which is why we have six children. I'm just kidding. She has never once in her life called me that, Uh, with good reason. The greater the intimacy, the more personal the name. Did you hear that? The greater the intimacy, the more personal the name. It would be inappropriate for any of you to call me sweetheart or the sexiest man alive. I would think that if you did that, there would be something mentally wrong with you and you'd be unstable. It just wouldn't fit because we don't have that kind of relationship that is, re- that is really uh, set apart for one person. There's one person in my life that calls me that, and it is the person to whom I share the greatest amount of intimacy. The closer the intimacy, the more closely you have the relationship, the more defined the name becomes. In the Bible times, names were important in a different way than they are today. In the Bible times, the names of people would describe their character, it would describe their nature, it would describe the relationship that they would have with people. For example, the name Adam just means man. The name Noah would mean rest in the Hebrew language. The name Abram was changed to Abraham when his purpose and his mission changed and he became the father of a multitude. The name Jacob or Israel. Jacob was heel grabber, but his name was changed to Israel when his purpose changed and he became the people of God. This is also true of our God. It's true of our very one God. The more closely we know him, the more the names will change. God's names are, there there are many of them throughout the Bible. God cannot be described in one way, so he has many names to describe himself. 
God wants us to know him. The better we know him, the closer we grow to him. In Jeremiah chapter 9, it says, Let the one who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. For I am Adonai, who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. In these things I delight. It is a guarantee. It's a promise. It is a declaration of Adonai. We are on a journey to learn more about God, and that's the purpose of this series, to learn more about him, to grow closer to him, to understand the names of God so that we can know him better. Someone once said, and said very well, that God has no favorites, only intimates. He has people that intimately know him. Not a favoritism, but people who are in intimate relationship with him. And the more you know about his names, the more intimate your relationship with him can become. As we know these names of God, we begin to realize that he is the answer to the greatest needs that we have in life. Week one, we learned that he is our creator. He is Elohim. As our creator, by the way, just note this, he has created you with a purpose. You have a purpose because you're part of God's creation. You have value because you are part of God's creation. He is Elohim. He is the powerful God who gives existence and meaning to all of human life. He is the one supreme and true God. That is God as Elohim. Many people believe in Elohim. They believe in the creator God, but it has not moved or progressed in their lives to anything deeper than that. They don't reflect the other names of God and in their relationship with him. Week two, last week, we learned that God is the I am. He is Yahweh, yod heh vav heh in the Hebrew language. He is, what we learned, was the promise-keeping God. He is the self-existent, eternal, relational, always present, unchanging, promise-keeping God. And what that does is it not only meets our need for Elohim, the fact that we have a purpose, but it also meets the need that we have for security in our lives, because we have a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will not change. His promises are, are true and they will always stay true. Today, we need to move that relationship one step further along the scale of intimacy as we learn that God is Lord and Master. Let's pray as we begin. Father, help us to understand this and help us really to take heart of this message because this is so vitally important to understand that you are not just creator, but you are also the God who is the Lord and master of our lives. There are many in this room that have not come to that point of surrendering all they have to you of saying, God, you will be the master and the Lord and the owner of my life. And I pray before this service ends that we will make that decision to say, God, I am all in. I am all yours. You are the owner of my life. Whatever you say, wherever you lead, however you determine, we will diligently and faithfully follow because you are Lord and master. Show us your truth in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, let's dig into this right away. Genesis chapter 15, verse one is the first time that we see this idea of Adonai coming into existence. Before that, God was Elohim. He was creator. He was the powerful, all supreme God. 
But in chapter 15, verse 1, in having a conversation with Abram, whose name would be changed to Abraham, God had a calling upon his life. God would call him to be the father of a multitude of nations. He told Abram to look up at the stars in the sky, try to count the number of stars, which is an impossibility. That's how many children you're going to have. This is how many are going to come out of your life, out of your lineage. He says this to Abram. After these things, the word of Adonai came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, My Lord, Adonai. That idea of Adonai, that word Adonai, appears 434 times in the Bible. It is the most common phrase that is used to describe who God is, to describe the nature of God. The word Adonai simply means Lord or Master or Ruler. He is Lord, he is Master, he is Ruler. He's not just Creator, he's Lord, he is Master, he is Ruler. What it refers to is this, it is the one who has power, authority, dominion, rulership, or ownership or influence over the hearts and minds of his followers. When the term Adonai is used, it's a term that is used as a description of God, as a title of respect for God, more than just simply a formal name. It is describing who he is. In the Bible, God is referred to as Adonai multitudes of times because he is the owner of all. He is the ruler of all. He has dominion over all. And this just logically makes sense. If he is the one that created, therefore he has ownership over his entire creation. In Psalm 50 verse 10, God reveals his ownership when he says this, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. When you experience God and you come to him as Adonai in your life, you start to experience God as ruler or owner in your life. You will knowingly come to him as owner in a means of surrender. God, I will surrender my heart. I will surrender my life to you because you are the owner. You're the ruler. You are the master of my life. God, you will have the final decision-making process in my life. You will call the shots in my life. You will have the final say. In other words, you begin to say, God, you have priority in my life. Does God, Adonai, have the priority in your life? There are some in here that would say, absolutely, he has the priority in my life. There are others that would say, well, by the way that I live my life, I have demonstrated he is not my priority. Other things are my priority. Other people are my priority. Boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, they're my priority. My children are my priority. Sports is my priority. In fact, would you just be quiet so that I can get to the football game and watch it? Because that's my priority. That's the priority. We have other priorities in life. But Adonai is the statement that says, God, you will be my priority. To make the leap from Elohim, creator, to Yahweh, the I am, the promise keeper God, to Adonai, master, requires a life that is surrendered. In order to have him be the master and Lord of life, it requires surrender. And some of us have been fighting against that for so long. 
The, pa- the pieces will never fit into place until I finally come to him in a posture of surrender. God, all I am and all I have and all I will ever be is yours. In Romans 12, 1, Paul describes this. He says this about surrender. He says, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, notice the word, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service. What is he saying? I want you to present yourself. What does it mean to present yourself? It means to offer yourself up. Paul says this, I want you to offer yourself, offer your body to God as a living sacrifice. In other words, it's no longer yours, it's his. Have you ever come to that point in life where you've said, God, my life is now yours. My body is now yours. It is under your control. It is under your authority. It is under your lordship in my life. In the book of Job, it says this, If you devote your heart to him and spread out your hands to him. That's another picture of what it means to present. Most of us have clenched fists toward God. God, don't make me change. Don't make me do what I don't want to do. I don't want to do that. I don't like that. So you will close your fists toward God. But God calls us and says, spread your hands out. Put your fists away and spread your hands out as an offering to God. If you will present yourself, if you will devote yourself, if you will open up your hands to God. In Romans 6.13, Paul adds to those words this idea. He says, do not keep yielding your body parts to sin as tools of wickedness, but yield yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your body parts as tools of righteousness to God. That's the idea of surrender. You present, you offer up, you open your hands to God, you devote yourself to God, and you allow him to become the owner and the director and the controller of your life. Again, it's a hard process. Many of us don't like doing that. I want to explain it in this way, and I know you've seen this illustration before, so just bear with me as I share it again. But there are three possible stages that your heart could possibly be in today. Stage number one is the dark heart, and I would call that the dead heart. It's a heart that does not have God in it at all. You are spiritually dead because you've never accepted the Lord into your life. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God promised them that in the day that they sinned, they would die. We know that they did not die physically that day, but they died spiritually that day because that day they were kicked out of the garden. That day they lost intimacy with God. That day they lost the innocence that they walked in. That day they no longer had access to God the way that they had before. They died spiritually on that day. This is why... Jesus says that you have to be born again. Your heart, your spirit has to come to life. You have to accept Christ. If you don't accept Christ into your life and you die in that state, you will be forever in punishment. You will be forever separated from God forever and ever for all eternity. Your heart could possibly be darkened. It could possibly be dead. But let me just make the assumption that most of you in this room have accepted Christ into your heart. 
You have desired to have a relationship with Jesus. You've said, Jesus, please come into my heart. Please come into my life. I want to have a relationship with you. When you do that, you walk into what's called the divided heart. James says and calls it a double-minded person. What is a divided heart? Well, it's a heart that says, yes, I want to follow you, God, but on the other hand, I want to do what I want to do. And so there's this massive conflict that happens. The greatest battles of your, heart, of, of your life and your heart are in this stage because you will be fighting against God. There's a conflict that is going on, and the conflict is this. God says, do this, change this, fix this, give this up. Quit this, and you say, no, I don't want to. I like it the way that I have it. I don't want to change. I'm not willing to give this up. And there's this conflict. You feel the conflict. You hear the, con- you hear the voice of God saying, stop. What are you doing? And you just say, I want to keep doing it the way I want to do it. There comes a point in time where you start to realize that this is terrible. I hate this. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of battling against God. I am ready to surrender all to him. You get to that stage where you say, God, I will surrender. I have known you as creator. I've known you as Jesus, Yeshua, Savior. I am ready to know you as Adonai. I'm ready to know you as master and Lord and owner over all. And so you come to God and you say, God, here I am. My hands are open to you. My heart is open to you. I know you have saved me, but I am ready to put myself under your lordship and your direction and your mastery. You will be God of my life. And if you say go, I will go. If you say stay, I will stay. If you say give, I will give. If you say help, I will help. Whatever you say, God, it is you. You direct everything in my life. Jesus said that in these words in Matthew 16, 24. And I want, to know, I want you to notice this process of surrender that he gives us. Then Jesus, then Yeshua said to his disciples, if you really want to follow me, here's what I want you to do. You must deny yourself. What is denying yourself? It's taking yourself off the throne. It's not about me anymore, God. It's about you. I'm going to quit living for myself. I'm going to quit putting myself first. I will quit being the priority. I will quit being selfish. I will deny myself. And then he says this, take up your cross. What is the cross? The cross is not a decorative item that we put in our homes. The cross is a tool of execution, The cross was the bloodiest form of execution and the most horrific form of execution ever designed. Designed by the Romans to bring about incredible pain. From the cross, we get the word excruciating. If you've ever used the word excruciating in your vocabulary, you are using the words that would describe somebody who's hanging on the cross. And so maybe it puts a little bit of perspective. If you say, oh, I've got an excruciating headache, Really? Do you have the same kind of pain that somebody hanging on the cross would have had? It kind of humbles me. I don't like to use that word anymore because that word is reserved for what Jesus went through on the cross. He says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, get yourself off the throne, take up your cross, put yourself on the cross, and then I want you to follow me. 
That's real following. That's where you finally get to when you want him to be Lord and master of your life. When you say you're not just Elohim, you are Adonai. You are the Lord and the master. You are the owner of all. Do you know God like that? What is your priority in life? Is God your priority? When you finally surrender all that you are, you will realize that he is the ultimate priority. Yes, I do want to do a good job. Yes, I want to save for retirement. Yes, I want to love my family. Yes, I want to be a good husband. But ultimately, God, you are the priority of my life. You are the desire. You are the owner and the master, and you have dominion over my life. He really becomes the answer for the greatest needs in our lives that we have. And it only happens finally through surrender. To prove that you have surrendered to God as master, you will naturally start to do three things. Number one, you will start to respect him as owner. And what I want to put in little parentheses behind that or under that is this, you will begin to give God your best. What is God the owner of in my life when I finally surrendered to him? Well, he's the owner of, my, of me. He's the owner of my family. He's the owner of my finances. He's the owner of my job. He's the owner of my desires. He's the owner of my attitude. He's the owner of my life. And I will begin to respect him as the ultimate owner. And as respecting him as the ultimate owner, I want to give him the absolute best because he is worthy of our respect and adoration. You first show that you have surrendered to God by saying, God, you are now owner of all. Now, most of us struggle with that because we want to be the owner. It's kind of like this example. If a mom goes to a store, and at home, the mom has two little toddlers, and mom goes to the store and she buys a toy for the kids. She thinks these kids will really like this. And so mom comes home and she gives the toy to the toddlers. And the toddlers love it. And they start playing with it. But it isn't very long before the toddlers start fighting over the toy. Grabbing the toy. Pulling the toy away from the other person. Saying, mine. It's mine. Now, this goes on for a while until the real owner intervenes, mom, who comes to the kids, gets the toy, pulls it away, and says, you can't play with this again until you learn to share. You ever been there with, parent, with kids? Or are my kids the only ones that have ever done that in life? That's the picture. We act like toddlers when God is rightfully the owner. What I am wrestling with is not even mine. It's God's and his alone because he is the owner of all. When you come to that, not only do you want to respect him, you are the owner, but it's a natural desire to give God our best. I'm gonna give you an example of this. This is an incredible example, I think. It's out of the Old Testament. It's out of Malachi chapter one, verses six through eight. I want you to look at this example. So God is speaking to the nation of Israel, and God says some incredible words to them about this whole idea of God being Adonai, of him being master and owner. Look at what God says. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. So if I am father, where's my honor? God could even say that to us. You call me father, if I'm your father, 
are you honoring me like your father? Pretty convicting. If I am master, where's my reverence? Says Adonai Zavaot, which means Lord, master of hosts, master of the angelic armies, God of the armies. You priests who despise my name. What does the word despise mean? It means treat as common, like just any other common thing. Adonai is owner of all, but they treat him like he's just common. It's kind of like this. If you have somebody um, that you really honor coming over for dinner, what would you do? Would you open a can of SpaghettiOs and give give that to them? Is that what you would do? Would you pull the leftovers out of the refrigerator and give that to them? You, here's some leftovers. It's, we haven't eaten it, so let's just eat that. If you had somebody of honor, let's say it's um, you know, somebody in royalty or somebody who's famous that you really admire, if they were coming over, what would you do? Or would you make sure the house is clean? Would you make sure that everything is fine, finely set up and cook a wonderful meal for the person that is coming over? See, treating as common is just like pulling the leftovers out of the refrigerator and giving it. And many of us, that's how we treat God. We pull the leftovers out, the leftover time that I have, and we give it to him instead of respecting him as owner and giving him the best. Let's keep going. Look what it says. You priests, you despise my name. But, but the priests say, well, how did we despise your name? Well, I'll tell you how God says, by offering defiled bread on my altar. In other words, it's like we're just giving you the leftovers, God. But you say, how did we defile you when you say the table of Adonai is despicable? Again, it's another word that means just common. It's just, it's leftovers. When you bring a blind one as a sacrifice, is it not wrong? Or when you bring a lame or sick one, is it not wrong? You know what they would do? The priest would do in that day is that they were supposed to bring God an offering, a sacrifice. Let's say it's a sacrificial lamb. And what they would do is they would go to the lamb and they would go to the herd that they have and they would, they would look through the herd and they would find the one that is like the sickly one, the lame one, the blind one, the one that we know is no value. It has, we're not gonna get any money at market for this one. That's the one I'll give to God. And so they would take that one and they would bring it to God, which defies what God said when God says, you bring me the absolute best. God deserves the best, but we're going to bring him the, the one that's the weakest, the lamest, the, the worst. It's what we do in life. We give God the leftovers. We give God the second best or the third or the fourth or the fifth best. God is not as important, so we'll just give him whatever leftovers we can give him. God says this. Here's what I want you to do, people. He says, offer them now to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? So so he's painting the picture. Have the governor over for dinner and give him what you're giving me. Would the governor be pleased with you? Or would you be embarrassed? Would the governor say, "What what are you serving me? Don't you know who I am? That's what God is saying. Try it with them and then you'll really see how bad it is. Or will he acknowledge you favorably? This governor says, Adonai, Zavaot, Lord of hosts. God desires his people to come to him and say, God, here am I. 
and here is my best, and here is my first, and you will be the priority, and I will treat you with the reverence and the respect that you rightfully deserve. God becomes owner, and if we are really surrendered, we respect him as owner. Number two, we serve him as master. We will begin to serve him as master. Not only is God the owner and worthy of your respect, but the name Adonai means master. He will be master over your life. I want to show you one verse that deals with this and explain to you what this means. Galatians 6.17, Paul says, From now on, let no one make trouble for me. For I bear on my body, some of your versions will say scars, but it's not the word scars. That's not an, an accurate word. I bear on my body the stigmata of Yeshua. What is stigmata? Well, you know the first part of that, the singular, is the word stigma. You know what a stigma is. Stigmata is the plural. I'm guessing, though, that you may have an idea of what it means, but you don't really know the background biblically of what the word stigmata or stigma actually means. Let me explain it to you. In that day, in that culture, a family, a household would often have servants, If it was, especially if it was a family that had any kind of money. They would have servants. There were two kinds of servants that the Bible talked about. There were what was called hired servants, and then there were those that were called bond slaves. A hired servant was somebody that was just hired off the street to come to work for the family. The hired servant really had no right to the family's uh, uh, money. They had no right to the family's protection. They were basically there working, but they really weren't a part of the family. Well, that was different from a bond slave. A bond slave was a purchased servant. It was somebody that they actually purchased in slavery and they would bring into the household. A bond servant would faithfully serve their family and they would be literally a part of the family. They would be so engaged with the family, so close to the family, that they would become part of the family. After so many years, a bond slave would fulfill their requirement. A lot of times, people got themselves into this mess because of debt. They had a lot of debt. They were sold into slavery. They were purchased by a family. They became a bond slave. If a bond slave had fulfilled their contract, but the bond slave fell in love with the family and the family fell in love with them, then the bond slave could say, even though you're releasing me, I want to stay and I want to continue to serve you because I care about you all so much. If that happened, the family would take this bond slave, often they would take the earlobe they would put the earlobe up against a doorpost. Sometimes they would take a punch and punch a hole through the earlobe and put a earring in, and it would be a special earring from that family. Sometimes they didn't use an earring. Sometimes they had a hot iron and they would brand. They would put a mark upon the earlobe or upon the body of the person. And the mark or the earring would signify that we are a freely forgiven slave, but we have chosen to stay where we're at because we love this family so much. Paul says this, I am a bond slave of Christ. His mark is on me. It's no longer about me. I serve him. The choice you must make is will you surrender to Adonai and serve him as your master? 
Will you let him put his mark upon you? And you will say, like Paul says, I have his marks. I am his bond slave. I am the bond slave of Yeshua, and I bear the stigmata on my body. We are bond slaves. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says you were purchased with a price. You were bought. You were bought out of slavery. You were bought out of the marketplace that you were in, the marketplace of sin. God bought you out of that, and now you have to make the choice. Will you willingly follow him? Well, number three, and we'll go through this quickly, follow him as Lord. So we respect him as owner, we serve him as master, and we follow him as Lord. Adonai not only applies ownership, it not only implies being master over us, but it also means that we follow him no matter where he leads and where he calls us to go. Jesus gave us the ultimate picture of what it means to follow him when he said these kind of statements, what you have seen me do, you do also. That's what it is to follow him. He served and loved, and his, his calling on us is that we serve and love the way that he has. In John 13, Jesus took a bowl, and he took a, a basin and a towel, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. After he did this, he explained what he was doing, and he said this, you call me teacher and master, which is teacher and Adonai, And rightly you say, for I am. So if I, your master and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash the feet of each other. I have given you an example, so you should do for each other what I have done for you. Amen, amen, I tell you, a servant isn't greater than his master, and the one who is sent isn't greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed If you do them, Jesus is saying, look, this is what I'm calling you to do. Here's what a life surrendered looks like. You serve the way that I served. You love the way that I loved. There was a story several years ago written by a guy by the name of John Jackson. John Jackson was a reporter for a newspaper in Indianapolis, Indiana. And John Jackson went to Ecuador to cover a major earthquake that had happened in that region. As he got to Ecuador, he saw a group of Christians, and the Christians were standing in line to receive food. They had nothing, absolutely nothing. They were barely surviving. So, This group of Christians was standing in line in order to get food. They would get to the front of the line, and usually they would get just a little bit of rice, maybe a little piece of fruit, maybe some canned goods if there were enough. He watched, and he recognized that at the back of this line of Christians, there was a 12-year-old girl that was standing there. This 12-year-old girl would often look over to her left under a tree at three little children that were over there. They looked like they were about the ages of maybe 10, 9, 7, something like that. And he noticed two girls, one boy, that most likely these were the girl's siblings. This girl was standing in line. As he was observing all of these things happen, he noticed that the people handing out food at the front of the line were starting to get concerned. And they were getting concerned because they were running out of food. By the time this little girl got to the front of the line, all that was left was one banana. 
Well, the little girl took the banana, thanked them for giving it to her. She walked over to her siblings who were sitting under the tree. She peeled the banana, cut it in three pieces, gave one piece to each of the three siblings who were there, who eagerly took the food, leaving nothing for herself. She took the peel of the banana and started licking it to try to get whatever remains that she could get for herself. John Jackson in that story wrote, at that moment, I saw the face of God. The God who would say, I have come to serve you. It's not about me. I have come to serve you, and I want you to do the same. I have loved them, you love them as well. A life surrendered is a life where you say, God, I am no longer going to fight against you. I will surrender my heart to you. God, it's no longer about my will and my way. It's about your will and your way. A life surrendered is a life that says, God, you will now be the owner of all. If I ever get in your way, just tell me and I'll back out of the way. God, you will be the master you will be the Lord. You will direct my steps. God, I will present myself and come to you with open hands and an open heart saying, God, here I am. God, all that I have and all that I am will be yours. Here's my finances. Here's my family. Here's my marriage. Here's my job. Here's my possessions. Here's my attitude, here's my desires, here's my mouth. Everything that I have is now under your control. And I will, I will begin to respect you as owner. I will begin to, to, to serve you as master and I will begin to follow you as my Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, my hope and prayer is that that is the heart's cry of everyone in this room. We want to know you, not just as creator, but we want to know you as Adonai, as master, as ruler, as Lord over our lives. Help us to surrender all to you, to surrender all that we have, all that we are, all that we will ever be to you. I pray, Lord, that you would just please help us and lead us in, that, in those steps. Father, now as we enter into a time of communion, may this be a special time where we reflect upon and remember the sacrifice that you made for us. If you were willing to lay your life down for us, the least that we can do is surrender all that we have to you. As we take this communion, Lord, let it be a good reminder of the fact that you went to the cross for us, that you spilled your blood for us, in order that you might save us. We thank you for meeting with us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening to that message. We hope that it inspired you to trust the Lord, to treasure people, and to transform our world with the saving gospel message of Jesus Christ. If God is leading you to give to Journey, head to our website, journeychurchgillette.com, and hit the Give icon in the bottom right-hand corner. Your gift helps us to continue providing resources like this every single week. Also, be sure to follow us on social media and check out our website for updates and additional information. Hey, God bless you guys and have a great day.